Today, I try to do the impossible on the state of Tel Aviv and beyond. I am going to try to capture the last 24 hours in Israel, this truly revolutionary moment when those fighting to preserve liberal democracy have taken to the streets in extraordinary numbers, peacefully, with unimaginable dedication and determination to save the state of Israel that was founded in 1948. Free, Jewish, free. This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. Since I was a young girl, I have been engaged in political life, even if just as a bystander from time to time. And I always said to my own children, democracy is hard work. It must be cherished and preserved, and it is important for all of us to do our part. Voting is simply not enough. We must participate constantly and remain vigilant. The responsibility is ongoing and collective. Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought I would live through a moment like this. Not in Israel, not anywhere. And then there was last night. Sunday, March 27, 2023. At 9.42 p.m., I received a group WhatsApp message. Prime Minister Netanyahu had fired Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant at 9 p.m. The majority of Israelis were in shock, enraged, disbelieving, and make no mistake, it is a majority. In spite of what the coalition government may say and spin, poll after poll confirms that Israelis do not support this madness, which Prime Minister Netanyahu refers to as judicial reform. What set off the nationwide protests last night, Galan's firing by Netanyahu, in a dire security situation, was the final straw. Bibi is not advocating judicial or legal reform. It is a velvet-gloved coup he leads. I'll leave it to history and forensic psychiatrists to analyze how and why Benjamin Netanyahu became a dictator. Resolute in compromising every value and principle that Israel represents and has always embodied. Freedom, equality, democracy. We may not always calibrate it just right, but we sure try hard. And what transpired last night, the spontaneous protests expressing our rage and determination to fight this destruction of everything good about Israel, as the whole world watched in real time, that was a masterclass in how to cherish and protect a democracy. No street fights, no burning cars, no violence. There were a few campfire-type bonfires on the main highway in Tel Aviv. Not a single police scar was scratched. In fact, we parted like the Red Sea for police and ambulances. If democracy was a symphony, this would be a masterpiece. What unfolded was on TV screens worldwide, a peaceful, spontaneous demonstration of hundreds of thousands saying no more. We had no idea that similar demonstrations were popping up all over Israel. When you are in such a dense human throng, 
that the cell signal doesn't always work quite as well as it should. State of Tel Aviv is supported by listeners and readers like you. We are an independent media organization, and in order for us to create this content, we need your support. Please visit our website at stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv.com, and consider becoming a paid subscriber. You will also find some fabulous print articles providing superb background analysis and opinion on what's going down. Each supporter makes a huge difference. Thanks for being here. And now, back to the episode. It is now Monday morning in Israel. After a few hours of sleep, I am watching the press conference of Arnon Bar-David, the head of the Histadrut, the largest labor organization in the country. In the room with him are bank CEOs, hoteliers, former military and police leaders, every kind of freaking leader from across the country, every field, across ethnicities, every social and economic variation you can imagine. And our nun Bar David was on fire. The time has come, he declared, to return Israel to the right path. We are witnesses to the unimaginable. It is difficult to comprehend at first, and it happens so quickly. The intensity and casual acceptance of corruption, the disregard of the government composed of far too many convicted criminals and terrorists sitting as ministers. They work through democratic means to destroy our liberal democracy. No matter who spoke up in the last few months trying to inject reason and sanity into the public discourse, Netanyahu and his coalition partners dismissed them as leftist anarchists, Ashkenaz elitists, cliquey, snobby Tel Avivim. This was no B-list appealing to Netanyahu and the coalition. It included the president of Israel, every former governor of the Bank of Israel, including the current one, former heads of Mossad, Shin Bet, prime ministers, economists, every group and individual imaginable from all walks of society and the economy, and a full range of political views. This government is corrupt to its core. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has lost any moral compass he once had, which has been confirmed recently by so many who knew and know him well, speaking publicly. People of this stature do not do this casually. They are speaking out because they fear that he is destroying the country. When a prime minister of Israel fires his minister of defense because that minister warns that we are in a dire security situation comparable to what Israel faced before the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and the prime minister fires him because he's lost confidence in him? That's it. We're in the abyss. Netanyahu's ultra-Orthodox coalition partners supported him for one reason only, to receive more and more money from the state, enshrine in law their right not to serve in the army or national service. Madness. His so-called religious Zionist allies are messianist extremists who care much more about Jewish law, halakha, than liberal democracy. Ask them. They make no bones about it. The narrative supporting this obscene attempt to destroy liberal democracy in Israel is based in hatred, power lust, and a complete distortion of Jewish values and Israeli values. 
As I write this, I am watching Arnon, Arnon Bardavid of the Histadrut. He's giving the speech of a lifetime, and he just now called for a national strike in Israel. I believe this is the first time in my life that I have supported anything like this. Close the factories, close the malls, everything, he says. Universities, schools, Ben-Gurion Airport is shut down, and by a Likud manager, no less. Those among us who understand and value democracy are aligned, and man, oh man, are we powerful. General Noam Tibon invites me to his quiet rooftop study in a Tel Aviv suburb. That was 24 hours ago, and he was pleased that Minister of Defense Yoav Galand had finally spoken out that morning, telling the nation and the Prime Minister that we must pause all legal reform in order to restore stability to our security forces and the country. A career military man, quite by accident, Tibon grew up on a kibbutz located on the road connecting Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, strategically located to also ensure that the vital lifeline in the young nation remained open. His 93-year-old mother, he proudly mentions, remains on guard to this day. Six years ago, Tibon retired from active military service and has since busied himself with tech ventures, grandchildren, and, most recently, stepping up to save the country to which he has devoted his life. It was a great interview, but yesterday was a completely different world. In light of the staggering developments in the last 24 hours, I thought it important to circle back to Noam Tibon. So these first few minutes are a short conversation we had today. Thank you for making time. How are you doing today, Noam Tibon? I'm doing great. You know, I'm a professional military guy and I'm in the middle of the battle to protect my, my country, to protect my democracy. And I think that last night was a historic evening when hundreds of thousands of Israelis from all over Israel at 9, 10 o'clock p.m., instead of going to bed, went to the streets and demonstrate and show the government that they have no chance to move forward with this dictatorship program. And I was on the, the main street of, you know, the main highway of Israel, Ayalon, which is crossing Tel Aviv. It was blocked by thousands of people all the way. You know, I was there until three o'clock in the morning. And what I saw is wonderful energy and young people. Young people who say, you know, they were thinking, you took the wrong generation. And I was so proud of them. I was so proud. And at that moment, I saw, when I saw the energy, I saw, we won. We won the battle. It's not the, the entire, you know, the entire war is still a long war. And the government, I don't think the government will fall today. But I think that Benjamin Netanyahu understood that if he would move forward with this, it can take it back to a civil war. I always say bad things about social networks, but last night, especially, you know, in Israel, we're crazy about WhatsApp and WhatsApp groups. And this was like fire. You know, people 
went out of bed, boom, yep. the street. No, I was, I was not feeling well. It was 9.40. I got the message. And within five minutes, my daughter and I were out there. And, Good. you know, I can't I'm help but think you. that I'm proud of you, too. I can't help but think that Benjamin Netanyahu and his, uh, his loyal followers and supporters must be thinking, darn, we should have jammed WhatsApp last night. You know, I, I, I really think that there were a lot of supporters who voted for Netanyahu and out in the street. fired, you know, Gallant, which was the most moderate. He is not a lefty guy. You know, he is a, he, but he was moderate and he right. talked about something which is very, is very important for Israeli, pure security. Israel is under huge risk. Shut it down. Yeah. People understood that he's not talking politics. When Benjamin Netanyahu fired him, he light a huge fire. And this fire is going to burn him. And I believe that this government will not exist for long. Yes, they will, you know, there will be some, you know, maneuvers here and there, but Benjamin Netanyahu lost it. It's really almost exactly 24 hours ago when we were sitting and having a lovely chat in your beautiful rooftop office. And I, I would never have imagined in my wildest dreams, and I expect neither would you, have thought that we would be in a completely different situation today. But we are. And... It's, we no, not it's not over yet, but I no, I, oh, we're just beginning. Yeah. I agree. This it's is as not... we said, we've won, we've won the battle, but not the war. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been silent since 9 p.m. last night when he made the incredibly stupid move of firing Yoav Gallant. And it's now 2:30 in the afternoon in Israel. We've been waiting for him to address the nation all day, and he's nowhere to be seen nor heard from. That's why I say that I think that he's out of control. And I think that deep inside, he is very disappointed from Benjamin Netanyahu, from his lack of leadership, from his lack of understanding of politics. He used to be a very, very sharp politician. And by understanding that the people, Israel, are stronger than him, and he cannot force the entire nation, all his crazy maneuvers, because of his fears from his trials or whatever. Enough is enough. Noam Tibon, thank you so much for making time again. I know that we're both probably anxious to get back out there with our fellow Israelis and uh, continue to protest and voice to our support. All, to, all, to all our friends in the U.S. and in Canada, we will win and help us to keep Israel as the democracy. Help us. For a significant time during his military service, Tibon served in Hebron, the crucible of Jewish extremism, and where the Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir, resides. I was interested in learning about Tibon's experience in Hebron, which has always been a flashpoint. Recently, in another interview on television, Nadav Argaman, who recently resigned as the head of the Shin Bet Domestic Security Service, mentioned that he had interacted with Ben Gvir for decades, the first time when the young activist was arrested at age 16. It was not his first arrest. In those days, Ben Gvir was dismissed as a fringe extremist. 
Today, he is one of the most powerful ministers in the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. Here's what Tibon had to say. So let me ask you, when you were stationed in Hebron, did you have the opportunity to encounter Itamar Ben-Gvir? Itamar Ben-Gvir then was there. Basically, he was there, but nobody appreciated him. Right. He was on the side of the mainstream. Everybody see him as a very extreme, but basically a guy that's talking a lot and doing nothing. Now, the people who live in Hebron are ideologists crazy ideology. But they believe that by sitting there, they are guarding Jerusalem and they are guarding the state of Israel. And it's dangerous to live there. So you have to be very, very religious and to believe in what, what you're doing. But in a way, people must understand that there is about, let's say, 500 people Jewish live in the center of Hebron guarding bar by 500 Israeli soldiers on daily basis. So each one of them basically has a bodyguard from the IDF. So this is, this is a very complicated and very extreme place. When I initially approached Noam Tibon for an interview, it was to discuss his participation in a demonstration of sorts two weeks ago in the Tel Aviv suburb of Bnei Brak where all residents are ultra-Orthodox and pretty much no one serves in the IDF. That feels like years ago now, when we sat down to have that chat, but here is the discussion that we had on Sunday afternoon before everything changed. They showed up early one morning in the exclusively ultra-Orthodox city of Bnei Brak, just on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, to open up a mock IDF draft office. Their point is obvious. The ultra-Orthodox refuse to serve in the army. Yet the government in which they sit vilifies IDF reservists who refuse to serve this government on principle because they will not risk their lives in service of a dictatorship. They signed up for a democracy, not this nightmare. Thanks for tuning in to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you enjoy our work, please rate us. Review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Substack page, which is stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. Whatever works. Your thumbs up makes a huge difference. For real. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the podcast. So we were talking about B'nai Brak, and you and a large group of, most, I suppose, retired reservists. Nikim, yeah, reservists. Yeah, reservists. You organized this Operation B'nai Brak. Tell me, tell me a bit about it. How did it come to, to be? And, and Basically, the, the main idea, it wasn't my idea, but it's, I think it was a brilliant idea because basically we wanted to tell them, listen, guys, you're in charge. From now on, please take care of the security, take care of the economy. You are the majority. Go ahead. Take responsibility. And basically, you know, it was a group of reservists, so it's very easy to, you know, operate in military way. And basically, then, you know, we opened Lishkat Gius, recruit base 
A, a, a draft bureau. A draft bureau. It, it's a municipality of, of Neubrak. It's the entrance. And I think that, you know, it, it was very symbolic because, you know, they, they need to understand. Listen, guys, we are carrying you on our back for so many years. You want to destroy our democracy? You will have to start responsibility to take responsibility of what's going on in Israel. And I think there was, you know, there were no violence. We were 500 people, mm-hmm. a very strong group. But there were a lot of discussion with people, you know, on the street. And I think, you know, Bnei Brak is a place where, you know, people admire the IDF. You know, you go to Purim. Most of the kids in Bnei Brak are not uh, Haman or Mordechai Yehudi or Malkat Esther. Many of the boys are, are soldiers or policemen or whatever. They want to be part of Israel. It's the, the main, the, you know, the main tragedy is that their leadership, their rabbis, because they want to, to control them. When the state of Israel was founded in 1948, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion made a deal with the ultra-Orthodox, most of whom were vehemently anti-Zionist. In their view, the secular state was an abomination. Only the Messiah could create the state of Israel. Ben-Gurion was concerned that if the Haredim spoke out against the establishment of the state, that the United Nations might not vote to recognize Israel. So, the Faustian bargain was that Ben-Gurion agreed to provide free yeshiva education and living stipends for the few thousand Haredi young men who had managed to survive the hell in Europe. He was certain, and said so, that after a few years of sunshine, they would trade in their dreary costumes and ascetic lives for sandals and secularism. He was wrong, very wrong. Those few thousand have turned into an unsustainable economic albatross for the state. They keep them in the ghetto. They don't give them the ability to learn, to become part of the of our society. They don't learn math, they don't learn English, they don't learn chemistry, they don't learn physics. They learn Torah. They learn Torah and you know, with Torah you cannot provide to yourself and your family. You have to, somebody else will take care of you. And basically this is something which a huge mistake made by David Ben-Gurion and today, with their political power, they understand that if they will open this, this society, they will not have such a political power. B'nai Brak, early in the morning, is a busy place. Most families have 10 to 12 children. Their apartments are very small. Everyone is rushing off. They live a very highly regimented life. They are rushing to prayer, to school, to do errands. It's also an extremely densely populated neighborhood. So waking up, as they did two weeks ago, to a few hundred older reserve soldiers in their 60s and 70s was an unusual sight, to say the least. At one point in our conversation, Tibon said that some of the people were looking at them like they were aliens. Not in a threatening way, more like, what's going on here? How did the B'nai Brak population react to these 500 older Milunikim 
coming into their municipality. And the early morning hours of B'nai Brock are busy. They, they, they were friendly. Yeah. They were friendly. Some argued, some smiled, some waved, you know. What did the people who argued with you? They, they basically, you? They, they came back to their main ideology which said, you know, our prayers are protecting the state of Israel. We believe that God is protecting the state, and what we are doing is, is not less important of what you are doing. And do you think they actually believe that? Yes. Yes, they are religious. But at the same time, you're saying there seems to be a lot of interest, especially among the kids. They, 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 they were crazy, you know. It was the best show in town. No kidding. B'nai Brock was an attention grabber just like the Kohelet operation, which we covered in a previous podcast. But week after week of this internal strife is taking its toll. People are dispirited, and the national mood is despairing, but determined. It's a complete and total tension and contradiction. Each side in this dispute over judicial reform is certain of victory. For the right... It means pushing the first stage of reforms through the Knesset this week with no accommodations. For those opposing such reforms, which includes Israelis across the political spectrum, victory is a bit of a moving target, but generally means that the government would pause, at a minimum, all Knesset activity regarding these legal reforms. Give the nation a moment to breathe. Memorial Day and Independence Day are probably the two most important national holidays in Israel. Actually, make that three. There's also Holocaust Memorial Day. And they are all coming up within the next month. It's usually a beautiful time of year where Israelis are outdoors in perfect weather and celebrating with friends and family. But this year, it will be scarred. It's already ruined. Memorial Day is when the country honors those who have fallen in wars and terror attacks. You know, today there is a huge debate whether we can celebrate Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. The most important days are our Memorial Day and our Independence Day. These are two the most important days in Israel, and the hate today is so big, so people say, hey, you know, even in, in the graveyard, we cannot stand near each other. Of course, politicians cannot come. So it's crazy. And I think what Benjamin Netanyahu is doing, he is pushing it to the edge where he wants to do those rules. And I believe that the Supreme Court will, will say it's illegal. And then we'll come to another circle which we will have to decide what we are doing. We obey the law or we obey the government, which is illegal. So this is crazy, and it's all because one man, which is not his control, he's weak, he's running by his fears, and he's taking us to hell. State of Tel Aviv is supported by people like you. But creating quality independent content requires resources. And I'd really appreciate it if you would support our work by becoming a paid subscriber. This is a particularly intense and important time in Israel. We will bring you real stories, 
in real time that are shaping the nation. Thanks, and now back to the podcast. This is a nation of law. And if the army and security forces are forced to choose between this government's edicts or the law as it stands, and whatever the Supreme Court may hold, they've made it clear that they will choose the law. Absolutely no question. I'm, I'm sure this, 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 you know, nobody can be above the law, even the government. But yes, it's going to be very, very difficult because there is a huge population in Israel that was, you know, brain mixing for years that the Supreme Court is in charge of every bad thing in Israel. And it can lead us to... Hell, as you said. Hell, milchemet achim. You know, civil, civil war. Civil war, yeah. I don't see it as, as, a, as a something which will never happen in Israel. And you have to understand, and you mentioned Tal Ruth, we are now in a very difficult situation with Iran, with Hezbollah, and they see that we are weak, they see that we are fighting among us, and, you know, I guess, you know, Tal also mentioned 73. Yeah, I believe we are in a, in, in a very difficult situation, just like 73, where there is a huge security problem and we don't see it. Noam Tibon refers to Tal Russo, who is also a retired general, and spoke on Saturday night on Israeli television, warning that Israel was in a very precarious security situation, much like it's found itself in October 1973. That's exactly what Tal Russo said last night on the news, that don't fool yourself. Anyone who thinks otherwise is just wrong. He said we are in as dire a security situation today as we were right before 1973, and we both know that that was existential. Yeah. But it was existential from external threats. We're now dealing with external threats and internal threats, yeah, and everything's and, kind of combusting and, 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 and yes, and we have to remember that we almost lost the war, and we lost 3,000 brilliant Israelis in that war. And it took us years to rebuild our economy and everything. And yes, even in the 73 war, we won the war, but we, you know, we were totally dependent on American Nixon right. support. Do you think that there's any chance that the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, will change the way they live in order to be self-supporting? I don't th I think, you know, I think, you know, their main threat, settle our phones. Go to work, go to see NBA, go to see football. You know, only in Israel... They believe that if they're not working, it's something which is reasonable. And we have to change it. I told you there are three major problems in Israel that we, you know, maybe four. One is our democracy. On the line, this is a huge problem. The other is the ultra-Orthodox, almost 20%. We have to take care of it. The Arab population, almost 20%. We have to bring those two populations to become part of the Israeli story, of the Israeli 
population that provide and 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 not the poor people. And the third, the fourth one is of course the occupation. Thanks for tuning in to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you enjoy our work, please rate us. Review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Substack page, which is stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. Whatever works. Your thumbs up makes a huge difference. For real. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the podcast. For decades, Israeli leadership, regardless of political affiliation, has ragged the puck on some fundamental national problems. There has always been a more urgent issue to manage or address, and the nature of politics in Western democracies is that everyone has one eye on the job and another on re-election, meaning you don't want to rattle your constituents too much. Many of the issues that have now become five-alarm fires simultaneously in Israel could and should have been addressed long ago. But there was no perceived upside for elected officials, so things just kind of carried on. Until one day, the pot comes to a boil and the lid blows off, and Noam Tibon thinks we may well be at that point, which may well be a blessing, that there is no longer any way to avoid addressing the big issues. Israel, he worries, will soon be seen to be an apartheid state. Our strength was always our commitment to democratic values, the basis of our strong relationship with America and so much of the Western world. But that will not continue if we do not address these issues on an urgent basis. This is also something. One day Israel will find itself as South Africa. Nobody in the world wants to talk with us. We are in apartheid, and, you know, South Africa is bigger and stronger and still, you know. If we will not be a democracy, and the United States will say, okay, those special relationships are done. And I can tell you, you know, American jury, young people, they don't care about the state of Israel. They said, who are they? We don't appreciate them. We don't appreciate their values. We have a huge problem with the young generation of American Jewry. So without this support of the United States, we can be South Africa easily. And that's why we have to... And all those four problems are on the table now. And, of course, to all our enemies around us, you know. I asked Tibon how he would go about turning things around if he had his hand on the teller today. His suggestion? National service. All Haredim and Arab citizens of Israel should perform national service. It benefits the state, connects them to the places in which they live, without in any way compromising their own identity or religious values. So if you were the master of Israel, Ke'ilu, what would you do first? What would you, which of the problems would you tackle first and what would you do? like triage in a hospital. Yeah. I would, you know, I would, what I would try to do is to create shirut le'umi le'kulam, special service to everyone. So not everybody must serve in the military, but everyone must serve at the age of 18. 
and and to give you know the those Arab youngsters and ultra orthodox etc to become part of the Israeli society because what I learned that everyone who serve in the military is a better citizen this is the reality this is a true melting pot and we need help in the in the police and we need help in the education and we need help in the hospitals so there, there is a lot of place for those shirut uh, lumi service here that everybody will do and I think this will help our society and this is easy to do this is number one number two I would you know pay a lot of attention to education to the young people to give them tools to be part of the society with with all the respect to the religious they can stay religious they can stay over orthodox but they must be part of the productive society They must you know product for for the their families and yes I you know the, so this is inside the, the 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 biggest issue outside I would go for solution with the Palestinian I think this this can be done it will open a new world for us Saudi Arabia and all those Arab countries and yes I think so you know the occupation is killing us killing us. Well, on that optimistic note, I, I, I will be very optimistic. I asked Sibon at the conclusion of our interview whether he is optimistic fundamentally. Are Because you optimistic it, overall? Yeah, when I was in the demonstration yesterday evening in Tel Aviv and I see so many good people. How did I miss you? Yeah, <laughs> so many people. And I see the power and I see young people. I see families and I see people who are willing to come every weekend for almost three months and they 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 are willing to take risk I see that you know there is a strong very strong force in Israel that you know can take responsibility and basically this is what we're asking said listen guys let's do it together you want to change something okay but let's do it together in a way that it will not be a A full destroy of the democracy let's do it in a way that you will feel that you change what is so painful for you but we still keep the rules we, we still keep us as, a, as, as one society retired general Noam Tibon thank you so much for your time today thank you and uh, I wish you continued success on your we will win further adventures we will win I'm sure that you know it will take time and But we will win because you know the, the other option is the, the end of the state of Israel and you know I was born here I raised my kids here I have grandkids I'm I'm fighting now for their future I don't want that let's say we'll go to live in Canada or in the US I want that they will stay to live here in Israel democracy as well may the force be with you mm-hmm. on Sunday evening after I met with Noam Tibon, The celebrated Israeli musician Shlomo Artzi issued a somewhat shocking statement with profound regret and sadness. He notified the country that he was to be awarded the Israel plot prize, which is like the Israeli Nobel. But he said that in this moment of extreme national crisis, where the Israeli nation was being torn apart, on the cusp of losing its democratic identity, he simply could not be celebrated or celebrate. I am paraphrasing, of course, 
but that is the tenor of his very sobering remarks. Israel is approaching what is a very intense time of year. Spring, as everywhere, heralds the renewal of life. It is also when Jewish people the world over celebrate Passover, the annual remembrance of our liberation from slavery in Egypt, thousands of years ago, and passage to the Promised Land. Our history is one of extremes, with the Holocaust looming over modern Jewry as the most incomprehensible and recent attempt to annihilate us as a people. This year, we have Holocaust survivors, and they're shattered, to see this dream they worked so hard to build implode. Families who lost sons and daughters in past wars and terror attacks. For what? There was a documentary that I saw, I don't know, a year or two ago on Netflix. It was called Numbers. And an elderly Holocaust survivor told such a poignant story. Her son, when he was three or four years old, saw the number and asked her why she had it. And she explained to him that there were some very bad people. And they did bad things. And they put the number on her. And her son then asked her, were there no Maccabees, Jewish warriors, to protect you? And she said no. And this young boy said to his mother, I'll be your Maccabee. I'll protect you. During the war in 1973, she said, he suffered grievous injuries. She did not elaborate, and there was no need to. Her pain sears me to this day. But today... With this incredible popular revolt, it's a real revolution. There is real hope. It's going to be a long and difficult road, but there is hope. I leave you with a spot of humor. Yesterday, Sunday late afternoon, I woke from a short nap. I wasn't feeling well and had nodded off. The first WhatsApp message I read was from a friend sharing a weather advisory report put out by the IDF warning of extreme heat waves that are anticipated to hit us this summer, with temperatures reaching 50 degrees Celsius for four to five consecutive days, and that that will occur more than once. We are literally going to boil, she wrote. I thought that was kind of clever. And shortly after, the lid blew off the pot. We didn't even wait for summer. On that note, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe, stay cool, and please stay with us. It's so important. I expect that you'll be hearing from me again very, very soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, 
Have a great weekend.